welcome back to What Have We Done? A Winecast for Amateur Enthusiasts. And today we have a pretty fun episode, I think. Yeah, definitely. We're going to be talking about the Chardonnay grape. Uh, super common, but there's some really cool, interesting things about the Chardonnay that we're going to talk a little bit about today. So, yeah. So, yeah, we'll start with giving you a pretty brief overview, go over the Chardonnay group as it exists in the world, and then kind of go into our deep dives. Um, we each focused on a very particular topic from moms to alcohol content. So we hope that you like our really fun research. Uh, and then, of course, we'll be tasting uh, at least one wine. <laughs> at, at least one wine. <laughs> at least. Um, so, yeah, the Chardonnay grape originated in Burgundy, which is a region in France. And it's actually a cross between a Pinot Noir grape and a Buet Blanc. I totally said that right. <laughs> um, and according to, or it was in 2006, 34 cloned varieties were found in France. And they were mostly developed by the University of Burgundy in Dijon. Unlike what you may think about Chardonnay when you're drinking it, it's actually a relatively neutral grape. And that's kind of what sparked our interest in talking about it today. And it takes, its flavor comes a lot from the climate, the terroir, and interestingly enough, the winemaking techniques have a massive effect on it. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. The actual vine is quite dense, so it requires a lot of labor and pruning, and also um, it is more profitable per acre. So there are higher yields, which means that the grapes are competing for resources, which may result in lower quality, but I think that's also a lot to do with how the vineyard is laid out. Uh, another fun fact Chardonnay is the second most widely planted white grape in the world. In the world, which is crazy. Uh, after Trebbiano, which I believe is a, Italian. Yeah, which is interesting. I'm kind of surprised by that fact. I did look this up to verify it, and it seems to be true. But Trebbiano is just so uncommonly found in so much of the rest of the world. It's I don't know. It's surprising, to say the least. Um, but maybe Trebbiano also has uses outside of wine, as my guess. I don't know. I think I also was looking at this fact, and there was something that I read about like Chardonnay grapes, despite being kind of having an unpopular rep in a lot of ways, is, I think, twice as much planted in the U.S. than Pinot Grigio, which people typically mm. are like, oh, I like Pinot Grigio. So right. anyway... Not a, this is a fact that I ran through on the internet. Definitely need to go back and look at it, but it's kind of wild that it's the second most planted white grape in the world. Um, and it's commonly used, of course, for white wines and actually champagnes. And so when I was digging into the economic impact of this Chardonnay grape, I stumbled across on the, it's like partially a California, um, association of wine growers, and then also this thing called the Wine Institute, which is a California-led industry kind of membership association. 
uh, and they had put together this map um, of California's impact, economic impact on all 50 states. And so if you go to their website, you can scroll over each of the 50 states and it will tell you something like California's wines annual impact on Wyoming has, you know, the equivalent of 996 full-time equivalent jobs and is responsible for $12.3 million in taxes paid. Like this is incredible to think about like the impact of one state's wine and that industry on the entire United States. Um, and then if you wanted a deep dive further into California's, the impact of the wine industry on California, it talks about how um, it generates like $57.6 billion in annual act- economic activity, including tourism and uh, labor and all of those things. Um, it's responsible for, you know, 786,000 jobs. <laughs> Um, so I highly recommend just looking at it. It's just a fascinating way of mapping out what this industry is doing. And I think it's really interesting too, because obviously all of these maps have deeper stories. And I wonder how in kind of laying it out so neatly, um, we can then think about the, you know, what we've spoken about in like previous episodes about labor or harvest or forest fires, like that all contributes to how the wine industry in California is run and maintained and operated. And is that included in the figures? Are they not? Uh, are there, you know, visa requirements and like all of that for migrant labor included in those tallies of employees or are they not included? Um, but just a really interesting way of thinking about the wine industry. So. Yeah, and Chardonnay being a relatively neutral grape is also very adaptable. And because of that is grown all over the world. And we were expressing surprise it was more common than the Trebbiano because there's so many regions around the world that are growing Chardonnay. Um, so I'm going to talk about just a couple here uh, of some of the main areas um, which Chardonnay is very, very popular. The first and probably the most like famed and sort of highest prestige area is Chablis which is uh, an area right outside of Paris. And if you remember our episode on soil, um, the Chablis area, like the Sancerre, or sorry, it was the episode on Sancerre, not soil. Um, we were talking a lot about the Kimmeridgian soil, which is a uh, clay, limestone, and fossilized shells. Um, so it's very, very uh, unique and very special soil in which the Chardonnay, being a relatively neutral grape that takes on the characteristics of the soil, uh, Chablis have a lot of really strong minerality. Um, that's really what makes them famous and really well known. And it's absolutely delicious. Um, in Chablis, Chard dates back to the 12th century and it's known for being highly acidic. And it's also not usually aged in oak or heavy on the malolactic fermentation. Um, malolactic fermentation, as we talked about in our acid episode. Oh yeah. I have to start remembering all that, all the different <laughs> content in the different episodes <laughs> now. Uh, but malolactic fermentation is the process that makes bar, uh, shards taste a little bit like buttery uh, and creamy. So that's not what Chablis are known for. Uh, we are uh, we already mentioned Burgundy, 
um, where Chardonnay kind of originated from. It's actually outnumbered by Pinot, uh, but it's still the main white varietal. Uh, in the region of Champagne grows a lot of Chardonnay. It's one of the three main grape varietals used in Champagne. California, of course. Um, California, of course, has different wine regions. But Chardonnay was first successfully made by uh, Winty in Livermore. Hmm. Um, and they developed their own clone in the 1940s. Um, and they, they, they started being picked more and more ripe. Um, so a, a later and later harvest, the grape had more time to develop flavor on the vine. Uh, and they started using American oak. And the Winty Shard and the Winty method of production of shards are developing those buttery, creamy shards that so many wineries in California are now known for, including Napa, the Central Coast, Santa Cruz Mountains, and Sonoma. And these shards, these big, oaky, heavy shards, also originally had very high alcohol content due to the longer time spent on the vine. So they were, the way they were ripening, they had higher sugar levels. Um, and many wineries now use techniques like reverse osmosis and spinning cones to reduce alcohol levels. And we'll talk a little bit more about the alcohol content in Chard later on in this episode. Um, New York, also one of the big Chardonnay growing regions, um, is one of the first, Chardonnay was one of the first European grapes grown successfully east of the Rocky Mountains. And the colder climate, um, is great because the grapes can sit on the vine even longer and develop more flavor and fruit. That's fascinating. Um, although they're a little bit obviously different than the California big, big shards that I think many people are used to. Mm-hmm. Um, Australia is also one of the biggest Chardonnay producers, Australia and New Zealand. Um, it's mostly grown in Southern Australia. Um, it's the most planted grape in all of Australia. And Australia, of course, has a very warm climate, so you get big, big fruit flavors. Um, the shards from Australia are very diverse and they range from big and buttery to very light and acidic. Um, and the region for the reason for that is that Australian wines, which we should talk about in the future episode too, um, Australian wines are largely exported. So the wines grown in Australia generally historically have been made for large production export. So different types of shards are being exported to different parts of the world, which makes it more marketable and accessible. So um, Australia makes different kinds of shards because of that. I think more and more um, Australia is known for their, their wine, you know, in Australia, there's a big tourism movement and, and uh, wine's pretty, pretty heavily consumed in Australia as well. But um, there's still lots of reference to the, the export model of Australia. Other regions of note are Washington state, Oregon, British Columbia, Northern Italy, South Africa, Israel and Lebanon, Argentina, and Croatia. But honestly, this list goes on and on and on. And almost everywhere in the world that wine is made, there are at least a few Chardonnay vineyards. Uh, it's absolutely just present everywhere. That is just so interesting to think about. I mean, I, I need to confess that, you know, if, before we even started this podcast and definitely for a very long time throughout it, I would be the person who'd say, I don't want a Chardonnay because it's oaky and I don't like oak in my white wines. I'm, I will tolerate creaminess, but buttery and oaky are not my thing. Uh, so I never ordered a Chardonnay 
if I went out or if I was, you know, at a restaurant and wanted dinner, even if it paired well with the food. Um, and I probably tasted a Chablis because I didn't realize it was a Chardonnay grape and liked it a lot because of the way it's made in the French style, which is not as much oakiness uh, or not as long um, sat in an oak barrel and, and thus oaked. Um, but thinking about this on a global scale as well, there, I mean, since Chardonnay is such a neutral grape, it can just be so many things. And like, that's kind of exciting. Like, I wish that was what was played up in describing a Chardonnay and ha- it had more freedom in the U.S. to be more than what it's reputed to have, which is just this buttery, oaky, giant wine. Yeah. I think on this podcast, at least a few times, I'm sure, I think I've been guilty of the, of the shard hate because I think we both just really don't enjoy when I first started drinking wine, it mostly was um, those big, heavy, oaky, buttery shards. And I just associated that with the grape itself. Mm-hmm. So learning now how much diversity there is in Chardonnay, I do think it gets a bad rap that's not necessarily deserved. Um, but I found so many shards that I've liked that are not oaky and not buttery. Um, I'll give another shout out. For the fifth, sixth time, I think, <laughs> to the, the wonderful store that is Costco Wholesale. Yes. Um, Chablis, because it's a very um, relatively small and prestigious area, um, Chablis can be a little bit expensive, but Kirkland Signature, the Costco brand, actually makes a Grand Cru Chablis mm. that they sell for about 30 or 35 bucks at Costco. And it is worth every penny if you want to spend a little bit more on a nice Chablis, but don't want to go all out um, on some super fancy hundred plus dollar bottle of Chablis. Um, the Costco Chablis is a great introduction to how fantastic Chablis can be. And you would not drink that side by side with a big, heavy, oaky Napa shard and not think that all. there was any way that they were the same grape. Um, so just... Yeah, I think the importance of keeping an open mind about different grapes, um, especially Chardonnay. I know it gets a gets a lot of hate out there, and it's not you know it's not if it's deserved um, for for good reason. But there's there's something for in a Chard for everyone who likes wine. And what caught my eye when we were doing research for this episode was how Chardonnay is considered a finished in the winery kind of wine, which I've never really thought about. But I think that describes exactly what you're describing, right? Which it's up to the winemaker or the winemaker has a lot more power in in crafting the taste of the Chardonnay wine that's sold over other grapes. Um, and the impact of climate and terroir are definitely huge factors, but like, I mean, I wonder how much, I, I mean, I'm sure that there are vineyards out there who have done two, like have Chardonnay on a plot, and then can do two different things because the, the winemaker is good enough to say, okay, I want this oaked in, you know, 1.5, you know, half American, half French oak for one year, three months or whatever it is. And the rest is in stainless steel. Um, and that will have a massive difference on mm-hmm. the finished product. 
So as we both mentioned many times, we don't like big, buttery, <laughs> oaky shards. So the wine we're having today is a little bit different of a shard. So what are we having, Dana? So we had the wonderful, pleasant experience of going to a winery in Sonoma called Taft Street. And while we were there, we tasted a Chardonnay. We tasted two Chardonnays. Um, one was more in the traditional classic California big oaked way and the other is not. And so the, the wine we're drinking today is called the, it's a Chardonnay. Uh, from Taft Street, 2018, from Hopkins River Ranch in the Russian River Valley in Sonoma County. And what's special about this wine is that it's made in the fashion of garagistas. I can't help but say it's slightly Spanish sounding, but essentially it's, it's made in a garage. Uh, and there's a whole tradition of, um, the sort of home, not home style, but like almost like down to like making wine in your garage and coming up with a product that's less fancy than the facilities that are known for, you know, like what we think of and associate with the winery. Um, And so this Chardonnay we're tasting is... Um, barrel fermented in demi, demi French oak. Um, 25% was new and 15% was one year old. And the remainder of it was, um, oaked or put in two year neutral French oak. Um, so very subtle, essentially. Uh, French oak tends to be pretty non, uh, invasive is a terrible way of saying it, but it doesn't have that much of an impact. And that it was put in neutral French oak afterwards is is very means that it, the oak didn't impart a lot of taste on it. Um, there were only 175 cases made of this wine, and I love these tasting notes that we received very generously from the winemaker because it also says the harvest date, which is September 26th. 2018 and the bottling date, which was July 11th, 2018. So really phenomenal information. There's so much more here. It also includes like the tasting notes, the vineyard location, as well as the vineyard conditions, um, down to, you know, the difference, um, the different effects that temperate warm days and cool nights may have had on the pH. So I'm excited to taste this on this podcast because it's it is an example of Chardonnay that I really do enjoy. All right, let's have a glass. So first off, the color of this wine is golden. Or it's like a an off golden, like a more yellow than gold, but very deep. Yeah. It's I would say it's actually a little bit more pale than a lot of California shards that I'm familiar with. Hmm. It still has a nice deep rich color, but um it, it even looks a little bit a little bit lighter, a little bit less um a little bit less straw. Yeah. 
Uh, smells super fun. It's very, it's almost perfumey in a way that I don't associate with shards at all. Um, kind of tastes or smells like uh, being out in like a spring meadow or something. Yeah. With bright, bright, like bright spring meadow. Like the meadow that you're walking through when it's super sunny. Maybe it rained the night before, but it's, it's so bright, floral, mm-hmm. fresh. could still taste a little bit of, I guess we call like buttery and oakiness. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's gone through some malolactic fermentation. It has been lightly oaked, so those notes are present, but they're very much in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not overpowering. They're not dominant. Um, but the oak still helps it become a little bit uh, round and bold, smooth, um, without dominating the, the, the notes at all. And the wine rolls over the tongue. Like, I feel like it's, it's very, it's almost purposeful. It feels like a, a wave. Um, it's quite, while you get that, what I would describe as like the acidity, like that punchiness at the front a little bit, when you take that first sip, it's quite subtle for the rest of it. It's like a very subtle finish. It's very refreshing. You do have those. It's not, it's, it's almost like a creamed, not a creamed, um, like a creamsicle in that mm. sense. Like it's not, it is citrus, but it's not citrus like you would get in the Sauvignon Blanc, um, where it's tongue sucking lemony. It's, mm-hmm. it's a, a softer cream. Yeah. First, uh, with citrus. Like I've heard. Yeah, yeah I, still, I still taste the citrus as well, though. But it's, it's it's very complimentary to the rest of things going on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very nicely balanced. I really like this wine a lot. I really, I think it shows that even in a, in a region like Sonoma, which does tend to have bigger, heavier um, oak shards, that the winemaker can choose to do something different. And that turns out great. Even in that kind of a region. So I really do like that. I also think it's, it's, it's as great on its own or with food. Mm-hmm. It's not dominant in any direction. Um, so there's enough weight and body to it that it holds up on its own just as a nice, easy drinking wine. Um, but not so much that it wouldn't go well with food. Um, I think it's just a very versatile wine as well. And I, the, the last thing I'll think about in, or I'll say about describing this wine is we poured it when it was straight from the fridge and it sat on the table for a little bit and it still, you know, has that flavor. It hasn't, you know, some wines you really do need to sort of chilled. Some you need to let warm up. And I think I've enjoyed it chilled to slightly warmed. Like, yeah, it it holds up really well across that spectrum. So you could enjoy it over dinner and not worry that you keep running back and forth to the fridge. And the temperature changes those flavors a bit. It kind of shifts it as it warms from, uh, more bright and more flowery to a little bit um, softer and oakier. Mm-hmm. But all those options are great. It, yeah. it does really well with both of those into the spectrum, which is really cool. So, yeah. Thank you, Tash Street. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. I um, really like this one. Um, so, in my research a lot in Chardonnays, I kept seeing reference to this thing called the 1976 
Judgment of Paris. Um, ignored it for a bit, but finally went back. <laughs> so I figured I should probably know what this was. It was referenced so heavily. Um, this was a wine competition in France, and it was a blind test um, by very famous um, people in the wine scene at the time, not just French, but from all over the world, but a lot of them were French. Um, and the idea before this 1976 Judgment of Paris um, was that obviously, obviously, Chablis is the best Chardonnay. I mean. um, we all know it, <laughs> it still is, um, but in this blind test of, I think it was all French and California um, shards. There were not shards anywhere else in the world that I'm aware of. Uh, and there was 10 and they're sort of ranked in that the California Chardonnays won very handily. Um, and that sort of threw chaos into this old school French wine scene where, of course, the French are the best at everything. Um, and suggested that there were alternatives out there. And many of those Chardonnays were the California heavier, oakier, buttery mm -hmm. types of shards. And I think it's pointed back to you because it's sort of a well-established like event. So I think it kind of points to um, the mainstream like wine world sort of changing its shift in opinion. Um, that really opened the door to different styles of shards and not just California Chardonnays, but California wines in general mm. being accepted in the international wine scene as really great. So with this newfound uh, fame and notoriety, uh, California really sort of put itself on the map in the winemaking world, but especially through the production of Chardonnays. And the planting of Chardonnays after this event in California skyrocketed. And that's actually where you see like this really big boom um, of Chardonnay vineyards being planted all across the state. And another cool thing that California did that was very counter-conventional to old world wine wisdom was they decided rather than labeling California wines, just by the the region in which they were from, they would not stick to those same labeling requirements that places in France do, um, as well as other parts of Europe, that they would label things by the varietal. So before this, if you were to order a Chardonnay, you would go to a restaurant or a store, you'd ask for a, a Chablis or a, a white burgundy or whatever that might be. You wouldn't walk into some place and ask for a Chardonnay because no one really did that. But with California feeling really confident about their wine production, they're like, no, we're not doing that. We're going to label these as Chardonnays. So just the very concept of asking for a Chardonnay or any other grape varietal um, became a thing. Also became sort of, yeah, a, a counter to to old world wine like wisdom. That's so crazy um, to think about. That's so crazy to think about. Yeah. Like, even something as crazy, I don't know, it just, it blew my mind when you told me this fact earlier today. I think that's so very powerful in how it shifted a lot of what we think about wine now. Like, even thinking back to what I think about wine, it really rocked my mind. It was great. Definitely, and like, growing up here and trying to drink wine in California, mm -hmm. 
it's second nature. I, I always think about wines and varietals. And because of that, it's kind of challenging to learn and get into like European, like you have to like have all this like extra knowledge and like memory of kind of what's happening in what like discrete small little region in the middle of nowhere, exactly. in, like the mountains of Spain to know what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very challenging. I'm sure if you grow up in that, if that's the wine tradition that you come from, that is probably more second nature. And I'm wondering if it's also the, the inverse of that is also true, where if you grow up in the old world with that type of wine label being so common, coming here and having to like suddenly ask for a Chardonnay might be, I don't know. So much more dicier. <laughs> yeah. like, I don't know what I'm going to get. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. And also because uh, as we're, we're saying Chardonnay and, and as we're, we're drinking right now, it's showing an example of how the Chardonnay can be very, very different. Asking for a Chardonnay in the restaurant can be any extreme. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas if you order a Chablis, it, there's kind of set parameters what you're going to get. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's also like challenging as well. Um, but with, with great fame <laughs> also comes great backlash. Um, so as Chardonnay became more and more popular, the big oaky buttery shards took over the international wine scene. Um, there was a movement called the ABC movement. It's not like a formal organized thing, which is something that sort of organically came about from wine critics who started turning their nose up to Chardonnays and hating on the big buttery shards. And ABC stands for anything but Chardonnay. And into the early eighties, um, nineties, and it's still quite prevalent today, I think that there's still a stigma around Chardonnays because of the way that they exploded, became such a dominant grape and became sort of associated with this one style of wine production. Um, yeah, I think they, like I said, they, they get a bad rap sometimes. I think that's somewhat justified, but of course there's so much more. Um, and now there's a very awkward divergence uh, between people hating on shards, but um while people sort of have turned against the Chardonnay, it's still like twice over the most popular and best-selling white grape in the United States. So people might like to get on a pedestal and hate on the Chard, but they're probably going back home and drinking one anyways. Um, so there's that funny, funny dichotomy there. Well, that's really interesting. And I probably understand it now that I know how they version So kind of dovetailing from what you were saying before, um, in my deep dive, I was looking around at like Chardonnay consumer facts. It was a weird facts. The internet has a sense of humor and it kept kind of sending me to a lot of the stuff that you were describing about like the divergence of Chardonnay and it's kind of malleability until I stumbled on this article by Unusual Wines. And it talked about how Chardonnay has higher alcohol content um, in an average glass of wine um, in the U.S. than in other regions. Um, and they went into more detail uh, and pretty much talked about how an or sorry, let me start over. They have a Chardonnay has higher alcohol content than other than other types of wine per glass. So in a regular glass of wine, the usual alcohol content is about 12%. 
But in a Chardonnay, you can get something at 13.5. And actually, the, the Chardonnay we're drinking right now is 14.1%. And I was intrigued by this because I don't really think about alcohol content when it comes to wine. It's more of something I think about when I drink beer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so it kind of made me want to dig into, like, do we consider alcohol when we're we being winemakers are producing wine and how do how is that kind of vector understood and so we may have talked about this before i don't remember but um alcohol content comes from sugar so in a grape um you get a lot of sugar particularly in warmer climates because they tend to produce plumper riper grapes um with which thus gives yeast when it's doing the fermentation process, the ability to convert it to alcohol. And so typically in these warmer climates, you'll get a higher content of alcohol produced rather than in cooler climates where you'll get more crisper wines. And obviously there are all the caveats of, you know, how the wine is produced, how long it's on the vine. If the winemakers interrupt the fermentation process, um, and, you know, either add more sugar to make it a fortified wine or um, ferment it with other varietals that may have an effect on how much the yeast is converting. But I thought it was really interesting. And one of the other developments, and I don't have really good citation for this. It was something I was reading. And so... I'll try to find it again, but it might have been in usual wines, but it was also talking about how previously yeast would die <laughs> in, I think, alcohol content that was over 13.5%, but newer yeasts were developed that could survive up to 16%. And so that also had an effect on how long yeast would survive in these in dirt in these barrels in order to convert more alcohol. So anyway, long story short, really interesting discussion on the interwebs about the amount of alcohol content in wine. And usually if it has a higher content, it will taste bolder, leave a thicker sensation on the palate. Whereas in these lower alcohol, it will be crisper and lighter, as I was describing. And... In 2011, there was a group called In Pursuit of Balance, um, and they were a trade group of um, winemakers in California. And their motivation for forming was they wanted to promote lower alcohol wine because they felt like the Chardonnays they were tasting in California and other styles of wine were very bold and destroying any kind of pairing with food. And that there was this, they, like, they saw this bias among wine critics for these bigger, bolder wines that kind of shut out a lot of more subtle, food-friendly wines that were also being produced in California. And so I read this article on, I think it was Wine Enthusiast. Um, But essentially, the author was talking a lot about how this small in pursuit of balance group really didn't have that much of an effect on the wine scene, but they made enough of a, a din about understanding the complexity of wine, of 
trying to reintroduce into the conversation the importance of balance and that if you have something that's overpowering, it doesn't mean that it's better. That there is something to be said for what they've termed as more French style production of wine uh, and how you can have a subtle wine that is, you know, perhaps a little bit greener because it's from earlier picked grapes or um, has a little bit more punchiness because it doesn't have that over oaky, oaked style that you typically associate with Chardonnay. Um, so anyway, it was, it was just something really interesting. It really made me think about like, why do people drink wine? Like, I don't think of drinking wine because of its alcohol content. Like I never really check because it never really occurred to me. Um, but it, this movement made me think about how there may be, maybe that's a conversation we, be, we should be having about, you know, it's not, is it just about the taste? Is it about the accessibility to different types of wine that we've spoken about? Um, should we be thinking about alcohol content when we drink wine um, and what that kind of effect has in, you know, our social lives? <laughs> um, which makes me think about how, you know, wineries are closed after 4 p.m. typically, but, you know, breweries and whatnot. Because they open wall later. Anyway, it's yeah. just it's an interesting cultural thing to think about and how much of an effect that um, these discussions have on our consumption of wine. Yeah, definitely. It wasn't something that I started paying attention to until relatively recently. But I was actually wine tasting a couple days ago and we were at a place I won't mention the name because um, of what I'm gonna say, but they focus in big, heavy Bordeaux style wines and in the sort of race to be a bigger, bolder, not just in Chardonnays, but in Reds as well, um, a bigger, bolder, more powerful wine, alcohol levels tend to rise with that. And I started having a couple of wines that they almost kind of burned going down. Mm -hmm. And it was deeply unpleasant. Um, if I want to taste alcohol, I'm going to go have a whiskey or something. And I just, I, I don't know that maybe it's subjective, but. I'm not sure that wine is really the place for that. And what otherwise would have been pretty good wines, because of that high alcohol content, it just kind of ruined it. It spoiled the whole wine. Um, so I do like the idea that there's people out there kind of pushing for lower alcohol wine content. Um, and also the lower the alcohol, the more wine you can drink. This is great. This is Everybody wins from this. So, so unfortunately, the group did become unassociated, I think, in 2016. But that is such a true fact um, in terms of content of wine. So like when I used to think this too, like why would one wine have more in a glass than another? It definitely has to do with the alcohol content. But unlike with beer, which we go to a bar, like high alcohol content beers only serve in a pint glass, but serve in a tulip glass mm -hmm. or different sizes based on that alcohol level. You don't see that with wine. It's just in the pour. I've never seen that. I'm thinking, I mean, maybe you're right. Maybe that is kind of where that vector of like alcohol kind of gets opposite, like obscured in like restaurant culture, right? Mm -hmm. Where your typical wine pour is about four to five ounces. Mm -hmm. But I was looking at a wine folly article and it was talking about 
different levels of alcohol. And, um, like a standard, they had a, a line across multiple glasses with the standard pour and like what the level of wine should be depending on what kind of, um, varietal it was. And that was really interesting hmm. to think about. And I, I've definitely seen glasses poured more or less than what I would typically pour. I used to be a bartender, um, for a glass of wine. And I wonder if that was, I thought it was just the bartender being friendly, but maybe it actually had to do with that. I was drinking a lower alcohol content wine and they were supposed to pour that amount. Probably not, but it's interesting to think about. <laughs> yeah. And, or maybe if that's not the case, then maybe it's something that you might want to consider as there's more and more. Uh, disparity between alcohol level mm-hmm. content and wine. I know with the natural wine movement as well, mm-hmm. those tend to be lower and lower in alcohol levels, sometimes below 10%. Um, so having six ounces of a nine and a half percent, you know, pet nat wine versus six ounces of a 16.8%, uh, ridiculously heavy Bordeaux, mm-hmm. that's, that's a lot of difference there. But then also like, and maybe this is, because I have dove in, dove in, dove, whatever. Dived. 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 <laughs> All the way into to wine. Like, I'm not drinking wine to get drunk. I'm drinking wine to taste the different flavors, to, like, have fun understanding different varietals and how they come out and, you know, to meet winemakers and like do mm-hmm. tastings and go to Costco and get like the Costco woman to tell me what kind of wines I should buy. I'm not necessarily there for the alcohol content. Yeah. Well, and maybe others are, and maybe it depends yeah. on the kind of grape and who it's being marketed to, which is my segue into um, what I'm going to talk about last, um, which is the wine mom phenomenon. I'm not sure what word you <laughs> call it. I've heard it. The internet's call it like a meme, an idea. I'm not quite sure what it is, but um, I think many listeners will be familiar with the sort of overarching concept of wine mom. Before I get too deep into this, I do want to preface what I'm going to say um, with a 2012 article in the Journal of Wine Research written by Dr. Liz Thatch at Sonoma State University, who, in a comprehensive study, found that there were no scientific differences um, among gender in wine drinking occasions, motivations to drink, or preferred styles. So while the wine mom phenomenon is a very gender-based idea around gendered norms and ideas of wine consumption, uh, this is not necessarily thing that is backed up by people's behavior in real life. So I just, just want to preface that to avoid falling into sort of gender-based tropes around wine. Um, but a lot of what I'm going to talk about comes from a surprisingly fantastic article in Wine Enthusiast um, called Meme Girls, The Wine Mom Phenomenon Speaks Volumes. Yeah, and this article was written by Rachel Tepper Paley. Um, so the wine mom phenomenon is this popular idea associated with suburban white women uh, who are busy taking their kids to soccer practice or whatever. They're stressed, they're busy, um, you know, stay-at-home moms, and they have something called wine time, right? So it's basically 
insinuating consumption of wine as a coping mechanism for busy, stressed mothers. And Chardonnay tends to be the grape and the wine most associated with this phenomenon. And that is something that has been picked up by um, wine producers who have tried to capitalize on this idea. Um, and just one example of that is there's a a line of wine called Dear Mom, which was launched in 2020. And it's a line of canned, single-served Oregonian Chardonnay wines. And the press release says, Dear Mom was founded to pay homage to moms everywhere because, let's be honest, momming is hard work. So it's not just a sort of idea in popular culture, but something that's been subsumed by wine marketing um, to cater to a certain crowd. Mm. And going back to the wine alcohol levels, I do wonder if that also might play a part in the disinterest in taming down alcohol content levels in big, heavy, buttery, oaky shards because the demographic it's trying to reach um, wine moms, they're just drinking for fun and they're double-fisted and they're drinking all day and that kind of thing. So I, I do wonder if there's a um, a connection there. Um, but this this idea has been sort of canonized and popularized throughout popular culture. Um, and just a couple quick examples of that are the fantastic film Mean Girls. Um, and Amy Poehler's character is, is a mom, and she says things like, I'm not a mom, I'm a cool mom, I drink wine. Um, and she's always had, you know, has a glass of Chardonnay in her hand as well as I think the little small dog in the other hand or whatever. Um, and recently in the past year, there was an SNL skit too. Um, that was a woman having a birthday party and her girlfriends, you know, other wine moms hanging out having like wine time and they're, uh, giving her gifts of these like cutesy, like signs, you know, you hang on your wall. Um, and they slowly devolved into more and more like blatant references to this mom's like alcoholism problems and like drinking issues and it gets kind of funny and awkward um but yeah it's really become a, a pretty common idea and a common theme including directly in in marketing and wine and this idea is really criticized for normalizing alcoholism it kind of paints it in a way in which Overconsumption, daily consumption, daily mass consumption of, of shard is, is sort of okay and normal. And that's just, oh, it's just a busy mom like trying to cope and take care of her kids kind of thing. Um, so there's criticism around that. And there's also a really interesting um, quote in the Wine Enthusiast article um, by a woman named Tomi Akitunde. Um, who's the founder of Matramea, a content platform for black mothers. And she's quoted as saying, uh, regardless of race, any moms who drink can relate to the hard parts of parenting that wine mom culture mines for humor. But the insidious part of this meme is that black and brown women, uh, when deemed unfit parents, pay a steep penalty that's rarely meted out equally to their white counterparts. And she goes on to say that the same imagery that white moms deploy is comedy the harried mother at the end of her rope, reaching for a nerve-stating glass of Chardonnay, 
is often weaponized against black and brown mothers. So I just wanted to throw this out here as an idea that is very closely associated with the Chardonnay grape. Um, but while I know I've personally laughed at many of these things, love Mean Girls, love SNL, um, I do think it's important to highlight some of the issues in these types of tropes and memes and ideas that, that go around and just how much Chardonnay has been subsumed into those popular culture ideas. And I think it's really interesting and also important to point out that first study that you mentioned, which is like, there is no difference between or among genders in their drinking styles. And yet we've seen, and we've spoken about like the rosé phenomenon and how Mm -hmm. that's targeted. This example of wine moms, you know, there is, there is something to be said about the marketing of wine, which I don't think we've delved into enough, but it really does influence how wine is taken up in a larger societal sense, but also like, I don't know, like we've spoken to so many wine makers and vineyard owners and their, their number one talk talking points don't include, well, we really want to get those moms. Their talking points are about the grapes, about the conditions and probably it's a matter of like what kind of questions we're asking, but it, it, I don't get the sense from them that they're wanting to deploy their wine in that way. Yeah. I mean, the academic suggestion was that these types of heavily gendered marketing campaigns, Chardonnay in a pink can, for example, mm-hmm. um, simply just isn't as effective as just marketing um, wine in general. And there's another example of that um, that I think in the early 2000s, a wine that you might have seen in a grocery store, it's called Butter. Mm-hmm. Um, and Butter was also kind of a counter movement to the ABA movement being like, no, we can have accessible, big, heavy, buttery, oaky shards. Um, and that's become one of the best or the most increased sale, like Chardonnay wines in the past like decade. Um, and that didn't use the same like gendered tropes. Although I guess you could say that even the very like foundation of the big oaky buttery shards does have a sort of gendered marketing lens to it. Um, but that's actually been way more successful than some hokey pink can. Something to think about and talk about further. Yeah. I also wonder if, if there's a disconnect in larger production wineries between the winemakers, the people that we're talking to when we're going out wine tasting, mm-hmm. and perhaps marketing teams in some corporate office um, trying to advertise and sell their wines to certain populations for whatever reason. And I would also say that despite the academic article suggesting that wine consumption is relatively gender neutral. These companies still wouldn't be doing that if there wasn't some suggestion that there was a prime target audience to that as well. So I think it's complex. Um, and yeah, I think Chardonnay's right in the middle of that. What's becoming more and more of a robust conversation around uh, gender, race, and, and marketing in the wine industry. Yeah. Absolutely. We'll dig into it more. Um, very quick note. Um, I incorrectly 
cited wine enthusiast as the article I was speaking about in reference to In Pursuit of Balance, that group, is actually Wine Spectator that I was looking at, uh, an article by James Lowe. And then I also was reading an article, let's see if I find it again, in The Intelligencer by Josh Barrow, who talked about um, why Chardonnay is still America's best-selling wine and mentions this group. So, yeah, a lot of things. So much more than I ever thought Chardonnay would hide behind its massive popular reputation of being better than nothing. Yeah, absolutely. So don't turn your nose up into Chardonnay. Explore the different types of Chardonnays, different kinds of Chardonnays, different regions, different winemaking styles. There's something out there for everyone. That being said, we do have one final taste. Uh, speaking about different types of Chardonnay, the second and final wine we'll be tasting is a late harvest Chardonnay from Duchesne and Napa Valley vineyard it's a 2016 um and this wine was picked up when i went wine tasting with my family um so it's a beautiful vineyard it overlooks i think the estate just absolutely gorgeous vine rows after vine rows they have a lovely patio where you can sit outside and I think we tasted this in 2019. So. And Bouchen's in the, one of the most southernmost parts of the Napa AVA, um, right on the, the, the Bay Delta, hmm. which gives a little bit cooler climate. Um, Carneros is mostly known for its Pinots, but also Chardonnays. Um, very nice, beautifully light, translucent. Um, but very flavor packed pinots and chardonnays, which tend to be bigger, oakier and more buttery, despite it being a cooler climate, which just again highlights style in chardonnay can sometimes overwhelm, um, just region or, or things like that. So, and it's been a while since the tasting, but I remember tasting a couple of their chardonnays and there was one that I liked. I think it was their Hess chardonnay. Um, and we did buy the late harvest just because we were curious. We tasted it last and um, originally thought this would be a good holiday wine and never opened it. So let's try it. <laughs> so the late harvest wine is, as it says, harvested late. So it means that the grapes have sat on the vines well past when other grapes would have been harvested allowing for more sugar to like allowing the grapes to get more access to sunlight to ripen uh, and develop that sugar content so that when it is put into the fermentation process, you're going to get that sweeter residual sugar that is known for most late harvest wines. They do tend to be a lot sweeter. What do you know about late harvest wines? Nothing, so I was asking you. Okay, I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> this is my memory, guys. I'm sure there's a lot more to this. My, um, so I'm typically not a sweet wine drinker, but when I was working at a restaurant, I did taste an ice wine from Germany, and that kind of opened the door for me for accepting these 
sweeter palated wines. So I'm curious to think to know what you think because I know this is not usually your style. Well, on the nose, it's kind of weirdly like vegetal. Like it's got this squashy, like cantaloupe thing going mm-hmm. on, uh, which is definitely it, there's something very familiar about the smell, but I can't quite put my finger on it. It's not something I associate with wine. No, I agree. <laughs> I agree. The color is okay. So when I was saying that the Taft Street Chardonnay was golden, I was very sorely mistaken. This wine is like gold from the sun. It is such a deep, deep straw color. Yeah, it's like bright, like glowing gold. Yeah. It's actually beautiful, beautiful color. Like the sunset. It's beautiful. It almost looks like when you age a shard really long and it has this kind of weird dark, it almost looks orangey. It almost looks like the wine's turned bad, but it hasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, that beautiful, like aged tone to a wine. It's kind of cool. So in taste, I mean, obviously it's, it's sweet. What I'm getting is kind of more of those like fall vegetable flavor. I know that's kind of a weird thing to say. Like I would get, I kind of get pumpkin in a way. I got that on the nose too. It's kind of, it's like pumpkin-y squash thing. Yeah. And I don't associate that with wine. I have ever. I can think of one wine described as like overly vegetal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't hate it. It's definitely sweet. <laughs> um, it's definitely hard to do much after this. Um, but I wouldn't say that the sugar is like the defining characteristic of this. And usually when I have late harvest wines, which to be fair is not often, um, it's just, it's dominated by the sugar. That's kind of, I can't get past the mm-hmm. sweetness to get anything else. This one's way more accessible. And I, I think why I liked it originally, I'm trying to think back to when I tasted it, was that the sweetness that it was wasn't that like tooth aching kind of sugar. It, it tends to be more of that honey nectar kind of sweetness. Yes. Um, almost like an agave, I would almost say. Yes. There's a honeysuckle mm, yes. where it's, it's sweet, but it's not, it's not syrupy. Mm-hmm. It's much more drinkable than that. While still being sweet. Yes. Sweet. But yeah. Yeah. yeah like honeysuckle is the thing. My long winded story. My grandparents <laughs> in Northern California used to have this honeysuckle bush in very, very hot climate, uh, central California. And I remember as a kid, I would, I would take it and like drink from that. And it's like fresh, fresh honeysuckle. I get that a lot. That's, it's kind of a, yeah. It's fun to associate wines with like certain like memories and, and ideas. That's kind of fun. Agreed. All right. Well, wine of the week. Wine of the week. So I, uh, <laughs> only had one wine this week. And what a sad week. I know. Well, <laughs> I was also surrounded by cats, so I'm okay. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so I had a Grenache Blanc 
from a winery that I've mentioned multiple, multiple times in here, Bokish, um, up in Lodi. And what I love about what, why I chose this wine as my weekend wine was because it has a little bit more body to it than typical whites. So you're going to get that a little bit of creaminess, that little bit of like oomph in your glass. And it's perfect for hot weather because it was supposed to be hot this, this weekend. So I sat outside, drank this wine, enjoyed the hot weather. And yeah, it's, I've had it once and I will have it many times in the future. It's one of my favorites. It's funny. You mentioned that too, on an episode about Chardonnay. Is it a Chardonnay green? No, I'm oh. saying it's a, I think we said this before is that because we both, yes, yes, don't like Chardonnays that much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Grenache Blanc is a wonderful Chard alternative, especially this style. Hmm. Um, because it has a bit more body, has a bit more weight. Uh, it can sometimes even drink like a, still lighter end of the Chard spectrum, but kind of drink like a Chard, but it has this biting acidity that still makes it very crisp and refreshing exactly. on a hot, hot day. And Grenache Blanc is such an underrated grape. I love it. I love what Bokish is doing with it. And just, yeah, definitely if, if after all we said about Chardonnay, if you're still not sold, um, please go seek out a Grenache Blanc. Absolutely. That's exactly probably why I turned to it rather than, I don't know, a, a more... T- a lesser bodied mm-hmm. white, like a Sauvignon Blanc or a Pinot Yeah. But be careful. Some Grenache Blancs can be very, very light mm-hmm. without that body. It can be a little bit sweet on that end too. So another wonderful diverse green. My wine of the week. I don't have a wine. <laughs> um, full disclosure. I just spent the last three days in Paso Robles, an area in the central coast of California between San Francisco and Los Angeles. Um, it is one of California's premier wine producing regions after probably Napa. Um, and I think we hit up nine wineries in three days. The dream. And one of the really cool things about Paso Robles is it, it's still a pretty diverse wine region. So the soil types are quite different. The climate types can be different coming in from the coast. The further east you go, the hotter it gets. The further west you are, um, the more the fog comes in and cools the grapes on a, a daily routine. But a lot of a lot of the area in Pasarelas has very limestone-heavy soil. So it's very, very similar to parts of France. We were talking about like Chablis and Sancerre that have that heavy, heavy limestone which means grapes like Chardonnays grow in Paso Robles naturally and absorb that limestone flavor and that deep minerality that you don't always get from big Napa or Sonoma shards. Hmm. Um, I mean, there's a million reasons to love Paso Robles. I had a wonderful trip, um, met so many great people, talked to so many great wine people, had so many fantastic wines. Again, it's very hard to sort of pick one out of the bunch. Um, but I would recommend to anyone interested in the, in wine tourism to add Passarobas to your list. Um, maybe we'll do a post with some recommendations of the many wonderful wineries down there. Um, I've been to probably 10 now, but there's, I don't know, a million. <laughs> a I'm million. rounding up. <laughs> um, it's more than you could do in a lifetime. Yeah. Um, 
but I, I love what's happening down there. You know, small caveat, it, because it's sort of the secondary to Napa, it can be a little bit uh, expensive. It can be a little bit inaccessible. And I don't like to highlight too many, you know, super bougie, expensive wines, because I don't think that's really what this podcast is about. So I'm not going to go into those. Um, but there are, there are cool things to explore there. Um, we do some research that are on the lower price end. Um, tasting fees being lower, bottle prices being lower. There's something out there for everyone. Don't be turned off by the super expensive $100 tasting bougie, um, you know, Paso places. There's tons of other stuff there. And I promise you it's, it's absolutely worth your time. So. On that note, (laughs) thank you for listening to our episode. We're really excited to share our thoughts on Chardonnay and, you know, try to change the Chardonnay industry one podcast at a time. Please make us Chardonnays that are not too (laughs) (laughs) Until next time. Bye. Mm -hmm.